This is The Saucer Life, exploring the history and lore of flying saucers. I'm Aaron Gullius. The Saucer Life is a podcast in which we explore concepts, events, or people from the world of flying saucers. No preconceptions, no snark, no belief, no debunking, no room left in the library. This is Encounter 504. Read these 90s books. It would be interesting, I think, to determine which decade, from the 40s through this second decade of the 21st century, saw the publication of the most flying saucer books. Now, I'm not sure it would be an entirely fair comparison, given the advent of all the avenues for self-publishing, or indie publishing, I guess we can call it, that now exist, and that might skew things to favor our current time period. But in any case, some of my favorite saucer books, and some of the most significant, I think, appeared in the 1990s. In this encounter, we're going to examine four books that should be in your library, or at least on your interlibrary loan list. Given the vast number of UFO books published during the 1990s, I decided to narrow things down by choosing one book from each of the following categories. First, the popular classic, the book that is liable to be on somebody's bookshelf whether or not they are a saucer person, the book you're likely to find copies of at every used bookstore you visit, the book you'd hand someone who is an absolute novice to the field, the book that the more you read it, the more you find vague or poorly defined about it, but a book that's a good launch pad for further exploration. Next, we have the important book, the book that you single out as a key book for understanding the topic, especially for a particular era. We have the underground classic, the book that is well known amongst the cognoscenti and amongst those who want other people to think they're the cognoscenti. And finally, the um, it's sort of a meta-important book uh, that nobody's ever heard of, a book that's more important for what it is and that it exists than for what it says if that makes sense. The book that's significant because of what it represents to the field. It's a turning point. It may not be the best book of its kind, and it may not be a book you get a lot out of, but you have to give it respect for existing, um, which is pretty vague. But hopefully when we get to that book, you'll understand. So here we go with my choice for each of these categories. Like everything else on The Saucer Life, this is almost entirely subjective, and my choices, of course, don't cancel out anyone else's. So, the popular classic. We're going with Alien Agenda, investigating the extraterrestrial presence among us by the late Jim Mars. Right off the bat, we've got some massive assumptions being made, starting with that subtitle. There's extraterrestrials, and they are among us, apparently. And in the introductory sections of the book, Mars, who really at that point was and, and for the rest of his life really would be more of a political conspiracy writer than a UFO guy. His, um, his book that sort of brought him to, to prominence was, uh, was Crossfire, which is a book about the JFK assassination. And, and he's, I always felt like he was more comfortable in that world than in the flying saucer world. But as we'll see, during the 1990s, those worlds blurred together uh, probably more than at any other time in history. So in the, uh, in the introductory sections, uh, he sets out his position uh, pretty unambiguously. The controversy over the existence of UFOs is over. UFOs are real. Only those persons whose outlook prevents them from dealing honestly with the massive amount of documentation and reports collected over the past five decades still cling to the idea that nothing soars in the skies above Earth but man's imagination. 
Evidence accumulated over the past half-century clearly indicates that UFOs represent real and tangible objects, unlike anything that man can yet produce. Of course, arguments and protestations will continue. There are, after all, some folks who still refuse to believe that the world is round. So, Alien Agenda covers a remarkable amount of territory. My copy is the mass market paperback edition from Harper, um, published in 98, I think, and it runs to about 656 pages. It's like a freaking Tom Clancy novel. Mars takes us everywhere, from the ancient astronaut, ancient alien genre, to the 1897 Aurora crash of something in Texas, to World War II, ghost rockets, Nazi saucers, the Battle of Los Angeles, through Roswell and the golden age of the 50s and 60s, all the way to the late 1990s, taking it right up to date with when it was written and published, covering abductions, underground bases, MJ-12, Area 51, and every bit of ufological ephemera in between. He even discusses contactees, although in a very superficial way. Uh, for example, his discussion of George Van Tassel mentions neither the Integratron nor the entire figure of Ashtar, who, as we've seen, was a fairly significant character in that channeled saucer message genre. Amusingly, to me, Anyway, Mars describes one of the commonalities of the contactees as, quote, the use of books, newsletters, and lectures to gain money and notoriety, end quote. That's basically every flying saucer or UFO person that existed from 1947 onwards. Throw podcasts in there and you can bring it right up to the present. Uh, the use of books, newsletters, podcasts, and lectures to gain money and notoriety. That's not unique to the contactees. Mars closes the book with an appeal to humanity uh, that it needs to grow up a little. Mankind in its present growth phase might be compared to the college student, who as a freshman believes she knows everything, but as a senior realizes she knows very little. Our adolescence is coming to an end, and it is time to break from mommy and daddy, all dogmatic authority figures, and begin to take our rightful place as free-thinking and responsible members of a universal public. After all, to anyone not from Earth, we are the aliens, and fearsome ones at that with our primitive and destructive ways. Perhaps we are the focus of universal concern and are all being guided by a host of non-human life forms. To paraphrase that great possum philosopher Pogo, we have found the alien agenda, and it is about us. Who's Pogo? Ask your grandparents, kids. So interestingly, and, and given the short shrift that Mars uh, gives the contactees, it's probably coincidental, but the idea of a cosmic school with humans at a lower level than our off-planet brethren is a common rhetorical tool used by people like George Adamski and other contactees to describe the need humanity had for enlightenment. Overall, Alien Agenda is an encyclopedic overview of nearly every aspect of the UFO field. And there are gaps, to be sure, but it's a good introduction to our so-called field, if slightly daunting in its heft. Okay, the important book, Revelations, Alien Contact and Human Deception by Jacques Vallée. If you're a fan of the very blurry line between truth and truthiness and the role of government disinformation in the UFO field, you need to read this book. If you're interested in learning more about the goings-on of your Bill Coopers or your John Lears, you need to read this book. It was published in 1991, 
and Revelations was the final part of a trilogy by Valet that explored various aspects of the, U- of the UFO phenomenon and appeared at a critical time in American ufology. Uh, the shock and, and supposed revelations, no pun intended, from people like Lear and Cooper had faded with suggestions that not everything was as it seemed and that various entities, including military and intelligence agencies, had potentially infiltrated the UFO movement. Uh, and UFO investigation groups, and had suborned UFO investigators and all sorts of things. The early 1990s were, in many ways, a time of transition. And Valet's book is a wonderful document of a very exciting but very confusing time for those who were interested in the flying saucer world. Who is perpetrating such deliberate fabrications, and what is their goal? There is no single answer to this question, because there is no single source to human fantasy— no single reason for the deviousness of the military or civilian agencies that are spending our money to conduct secret psychological experiments, as the mind control projects of the 60s and 70s have abundantly demonstrated. The idea that there is no single answer to, in my opinion, any aspect of the flying saucer mystery is one that I wish people would keep in mind. I will be fair, however, and acknowledge that it's a lot easier to hook and keep and grow an audience especially a paying audience, if you're able to declare that you have the answer to any number of these questions, even if that answer changes as the years go on. Uh, but I'm really cynical, so that's probably why I think that way. Valet's invocation of, of mind control projects here is an interesting twist as well, demonstrating one of the ways that thinking on the UFO question during this time was blurring the lines between the paranormal and the parapolitical, and between speculation and documented fact. Valet continues. So, as I kept digging into a mass of information that had been generally avoided, it is not surprising that my research should have taken me towards some unexpected quarters. Some cases, it turns out, involved private groups with fantastic delusions and an insane compulsion to spread them to a larger segment of the public. Others were found to have been engineered by government agencies engaged in psychological warfare exercises on which they declined comment, conveniently burying them behind the curtain of classified intelligence. This bears emphasizing some UFO sightings are covert experiments in the manipulation of the belief systems of the public, and some cases simply did not happen. The stories about them, numerous rumors of crashed saucers and burned aliens, were not so much the result of delusions as the product of deception. Rumors deliberately planted in the eager minds of gullible believers to hide more real facts about which it was felt that the public and the scientific community had no need to know. We'll be seeing some concrete examples of this in our final encounter of Series 5 when we look at the prevalence of underground base tales, their origins, and their continued persistence in UFO and conspiracy literature. So, Valet, in, in this introduction to his book, attempts to summarize what he's trying to do. Revelations is an attempt to clear the underbrush of an interesting scientific field that is cluttered with the weeds and the vines of human fantasy and with the poisonous flowers of unbalanced minds. But it is also an experiment in truth-seeking. It is something of a scientific detective story, an intellectual exercise in counterintelligence. By 1991, this was an approach that was desperately needed, as classified documents of dubious provenance had appeared and were promoted or denounced or embraced or dismissed, as whistleblowers were exposed as frauds only to continue their pitches to different audience who may not have heard 
about such exposés. As the burgeoning online and talk radio scenes was able to spread stories more quickly to more people, but with less finesse and scrutiny, the time was ripe for someone to come in with the machete of truth and hack away at that, that underbrush that Valet describes. Valet, though, I think wields that machete somewhat cautiously. Are persons like Bill English and Bill Cooper, John Lear and his major informer Robert Lazar deliberately lying to us? Not necessarily. I lean toward the view that these men are sincerely convinced that what they say is the absolute truth. The urgency with which they want to communicate it skips over such niceties as facts, controls, and hypotheses. They sincerely believe they know the truth. The simple, horrible truth. And that sense of urgency is incredibly contagious at all levels of our society, from the old lonely woman who picks up a tabloid at a supermarket in a small town in the Midwest, to the businessman who takes time from studying a financial report by watching an interview of an abductee on television. I realize I'm speaking with 25-plus years of hindsight, but I wish that Villay had swung the rhetorical machete with a bit more force here, at least toward Bill Cooper. Villay's conversations with Cooper, by the way, contained in the book are a lot of fun. But still, his reticence to condemn these guys wholesale gives us a nice window into the confusing nature of the claims that were circulating at the time. Hindsight's 2020, right? And things were much less clear back in the day. Heck, I halfway believed the Lear Cooper stuff when I first read it in 1994. Why? Because for a noob like I was, it was way easier to access their claims than it was to get my hands on rational takedowns of those claims. The stories of O.H. Of Krill and Bill Cooper's secret government and John Lear's machine on the moon that captures our souls or whatever, that stuff was everywhere you were looking for flying saucer material. Don Ecker's expose of Cooper that was in UFO magazine, much harder to get a hold of. Um, Lars Hansen's Lear and Loathing in Las Vegas, sort of scrutinization of John Lear's activities and claims. I... I it was, if I would have found it, it would have been too long for me to waste my time reading at that time. Um, this stuff was out there, and it was, it was nearly ubiquitous, even years after it had been supposedly debunked. One last selection from Jacques Vallée here. As we reach the millennium, the belief in the imminent arrival of extraterrestrials in our midst is a fantasy that is as powerful as any drug, as revolutionary as any delusion that marked the last millennium, as poisonous as any of the great irrational upheavals of history. Ah, the millennium. Long before the Y2K techno panic, uh, the turn of the millennium, at least here in the West, where it was recognized as a turning point of some kind, seemed to be bringing out a good deal of crazy. As we'll see in our next encounter, when we look through the happenings of 1997, things seemed to be accelerating. All kinds of things, politically, culturally, um, ufologically. And one of the key themes in Valet's book, and in his earlier book, really, Messengers of Deception, was that this acceleration or, or the perception of acceleration might not have been organic, might have been engineered. We get a similar impression from our choice for underground classic, Saucers of the Illuminati, by Jim Keith. Both here and on my various Facebook Live videos, just about every Thursday night. Check out the link in the show notes, guys. I've made my fandom for Jim Keith's work 
pretty clear. He is perhaps the most cogent bridge between the worlds of the paranormal and the parapolitical during the 1990s, not only through his many books, but through uh, things like his magazine Dharma Combat, which you may be able to find copies of through the internet. Here's an example of Keith's approach in Saucers of the Illuminati. To my mind, the most sensible yet least voiced explanation is that some UFO encounters are being staged for an ultimate and ulterior purpose. Is it within the realm of possibility that there is a group working behind the scenes to convince us that we are being invaded by space aliens? At some point in the future, we'll be exploring this idea further with stories of things like Project Blue Beam, for example. But Keith's ideas here are in the same ballpark as Valet, but with a focus on more arcane, esoteric, and shadowy forces or groups than military or intelligence groups. In order to understand at least a portion of UFO sightings and their purpose, we need to work on decoding what amounts to their curious language, a language pieced together from the strange events and messages of hundreds and thousands of encounters, composed of word and symbol and deed apparently bearing meanings beyond the obvious. We must peer below the surface, the apparent, and furthermore, we must view these strange craft and their occupants in a different manner, in a manner that is perhaps not so different from the open eyes that secret societies attribute to their metaphysical initiates. So in the book, Keith's use of the term Illuminati is more broad than one group or organization like the Bavarian Illuminati that you might have heard of. Like Bill Cooper, Keith saw a wider sort of coalition of occult forces. But what were they up to? Well, all kinds of things, and flying saucers were one of their tools to manipulate people into making things happen. Here's an example of, of sort of the broad conspiratorial um, web or, or framework that Keith drew in this book. This appears to be the plan of the Illuminati. In recent years, the highest level of political manipulation has been directed toward fulfilling the biblical prophecy and Freemasonic philosophic cornerstone of rebuilding the Temple of Solomon in Jerusalem on the site of the Dome of the Rock, a Muslim holy place, and placing a world king of Davidic bloodline on its throne. There have been several attempts by terrorists linked to high-level Israeli intelligence to blow up the Dome of the Rock, the reported site of Solomon's temple, an event which is rightly seen as a certain motive for the launching of a holy war between the Jews and the Arabs. Making it even more likely that the Dome of the Rock will be destroyed and the Temple of Solomon rebuilt is that a red heifer has been born in Israel, supposedly the first red heifer since the destruction of the Second Temple by the Romans in AD 70. The ashes of the red heifer were traditionally used for purification before approaching the Holy Temple. Some Muslims are concerned that the birth of the red heifer will be seen as the signal for destruction of the Dome of the Rock. As far as the possibility that the recapturing of the reported site of Solomon's Temple will set off war, and possibly nuclear war in the Middle East, not many Jewish or fundamentalist Christian sects or even Freemasons are likely to be much worried about this possibility. Millions of dollars have in fact been channeled into the terrorist organizations from Christians in the United States in their fanaticism and belief that the rebuilding of Solomon's Temple will set off the advent of the Messiah, which conveniently also carries all the earmarks needed for it to parallel the second coming of Christ. And the manipulation continues. There's a lot going on there, and you will see similar stories or theories or, or suppositions in books that have nothing to do with UFOs. There's a lot going on in that selection. There's a lot going on in the book as a whole. 
despite it being a very slim uh, sort of volume. And Keith's writing is more classic conspiracy writing than classic UFO writing. So when, not if, folks, when you read Saucers of the Illuminati, have a pen and paper handy to take notes, draw diagrams, and so on. This is one of those books you have to read actively rather than passively. So the meta book, the meta important book, the important book nobody's heard of, um, the book that I, I struggled to define and, and said was more important for, for its existence rather than for any one thing it said. We've got uh, 1998's Aliens in America, Conspiracy Cultures from Outer Space to Cyberspace by Jody Dean. Scholarly approaches to aspects of the UFO phenomenon were not entirely new in the 1990s um, or by the 1990s. We've mentioned a few on the show. David Jacobs' uh, UFO Controversy in America, When Prophecy Fails, and so on. What began to change in the 1990s is that the scholarly approach to UFO belief um, began to look at UFO belief and believers through a variety of political and cultural lenses in which UFO thought, UFO belief, was often representative of larger cultural trends. And, and as we're going to see, this sort of mirrored trends in, um, in social studies, and or social studies, like fourth grade class, right? Social studies, social sciences, and, and humanities scholarship that happened at the time. It wasn't just about UFOs, but UFOs were drawn into this, this ever-increasing uh, sort of net of cultural tropes and phenomena that could be that could be um, investigated within this context. And basically, there's a reason why I was able to, to talk about UFO belief in um, for my my graduate thesis back in 2002 and 2003. It's because scholar other scholars were doing it. Um, it. It made it pretty handy. And, and Dean's book, while not the first scholarly book to look at UFOs, was was kind of um, kind of groundbreaking. Uh, Dean is a political scientist, and Aliens in America sort of heralds the, the new age of UFO scholarship that would be emerging in the early 21st century. I was trying to figure out if hers was the first book of its time to really look at, at UFO culture in the way that it did, and we'll get to, to how that worked in, in a second. And so it came out in 1998, and as I was uh, working on this episode, I was sort of grabbing every book on the subject by a scholarly press that I had off my shelves and looking at the copyright date. And, you know, 99, 2000, 2001, 2002, Dean was, was ahead of the curve here. So from the back cover, it sort of sets out what's going on. In a provocative analysis of public culture and popular concerns, Jody Dean examines how serious ufologists and their pop culture counterparts tap into fears, phobias, and conspiracy theories with a deep past and a vivid present in American society. Aliens, the author shows, are cultural icons in which the new conditions of democratic politics at the millennium can be seen. Aliens are cultural icons in which the new conditions of democratic politics at the millennium Ooh, there's the millennium again, can be seen. So what we're going to see is this isn't really a book about UFOs or even about UFO belief. And she pretty much states that. Uh, check this out. I'm concerned less with UFO belief than with aliens in everyday life. 
How is it possible that American popular cultures in the last decade of the 20th century are so taken with, so interested in, so inscribed by aliens? Aliens are embedded in America. They have a history in folklore, a present in Hollywood films. They are part of the cultural moment of the millennium. Why? Interpreting these texts won't tell us. We need a broader, more multi-layered, and interdisciplinary analysis. We need an interrogation of the connections between cultural artifacts and social and political life. Reading the selection took me right back to graduate school, seriously. It was that, that same sort of low-level anxiety of, of not really having any idea of what's going on and just knowing a, a series of phrases to repeat uh, that made me sound like I understood the reading. It's about the semiotics of aliens, aliens as symbols and artifacts. It, and, and, and of course, we have to interrogate something, uh, in this case, the concept of alienness itself. So, Dean's a political scientist. Where does the political science enter into all of this? Ufology is political because it is stigmatized. To claim to have seen a UFO, to have been abducted by aliens, or even to believe those who say they have, is a political act. It might not be a very big or revolutionary political act, but it contests the status quo. Immediately, it installs the claimant at the margins of the social, within a network of sites and connections that don't command a great deal of mind share, that don't get a lot of hits. This is obviously a broader and more nuanced interpretation of the word politics than most of us are used to. Certainly more broader and more nuanced than I was when I was, than I was familiar with when I first read this in grad school. So overall, what is Dean's point in this book? My argument is that aliens infiltrating American popular cultures provide icons through which to access the new conditions of democratic politics at the millennium. The conditions are new in that, despite the thematics of space, technology, and millennium deeply embedded in American self-understandings, the increasing complexity of an age brought about by networked computers and information on the one hand, and the inscription of American politics within a televisual public sphere on the other, have created a situation where political choices and decisions are virtually meaningless, practically impossible. Throughout science and law, voters, consumers, viewers, and witnesses have no criteria for choosing among policies and verdicts, treatments and claims. Even further, we have no recourse to procedures, either scientific or juridical, that might provide some supposition of reasonableness. Forget the 1990s. This is relevant now and, and was actually, I think, extremely prescient in 1998. In my opinion, Basically, uh, Jody Dean's Aliens in America might be the most inevitable book I can imagine emerging in 1998. It's a product both of a, a shifting scholarly landscape in which, for example, the definition of political is, uh, is, is very broad, and also the way that flying saucer lore and political conspiracy lore were beginning to feed off of each other. Honestly, there was no way a book like this wasn't going to appear at that time. It's as of its time as a sociological study of a contactee group was in the 1950s, or that a summary of the UFO history in America would be in the mid-70s after the heyday of the golden age had passed away. It's, uh, it's a good book. It's an interesting book. Um, I, I think some of it might feel a little dated. Um, the, the use of the term cyberspace in the title, for example, you know, certainly clearly pegs it as a mid to late 90s thing. It's worth reading. Jody Dean is an excellent writer. 
So there's an honorable mention book and and a book that would have been in the category worst book. And that was going to be The Day After Roswell by William Burns and Colonel Philip Corso. But I deep sixed it for two reasons. First, the book and the consequences of its publication for the saucer narrative at the turn of the millennium deserves its own episode. Second, and probably more relevant, I discovered that at some point I had gotten rid of my copy and uh, couldn't reread it in time. So all four of these books are examples of how varied and vital the flying saucer scene was in the 1990s. And I didn't even touch books about Roswell and and the numerous examples of channeled material that emerged during the decade, or the innumerable overviews written from an extremely entry-level perspective. The 90s were the years that saw the UFO world push back into the pop culture in a way that it hadn't since the 1960s, and the wide variety of material that was published reflects that. The saucer life was expanding at a rapid rate, and the books of the time demonstrate that dynamism. Check these books out. You'll be glad you did. I've got links to these books we've discussed in the show notes, and you can check those out. And these are all books that have been out for a long time, so used copies can be had pretty affordably. Or you can head to your library and work some interlibrary loan magic. You can also explore the archives uh, of the show at saucerlife.com, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at saucerlife, or email us at thesaucerlife at gmail.com. You can subscribe to The Saucer Life on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast app through the RSS feed on the website. Ratings and reviews on iTunes and and other platforms are always appreciated, and we thank those of you who have done so. The Saucer Life Encounter 504 was written and produced by me, Aaron Gullius, and is a Chizo Media production. Till next time, keep watching the skies, because the skies are watching you. (laughs) 